you have landed on the one and only podcast where you'll learn about the people and places that inspire life-changing travel. This is Dramatic Travels. Yo-ho, my friend, Aaron Schlein here, and welcome to part two of episode 16 of the Dramatic Travels podcast. I got part two of my chat with Dan Luzonis coming right at you. Enjoy. Daniel, on the topic of travel, and especially traveling with your kids, you have to have at some point come across a low moment, a struggle, some particularly large challenge. Can you take me to a, to a particular story and tell me what you learned from it? You know, I was thinking about this and uh, I don't really have a low moment. I have a scary moment. I feel like Istanbul was was a pretty scary moment for me as a father uh, with, you know, with a wife, a husband and a father with my young kids. I was not comfortable at all in Istanbul. And, um, you know, that could have been peculiar to the week that I was there. But um, Istanbul, it's it, it was scary. We, we were in cabbed and went through some areas that I was not comfortable in at all. And, um, you know, they're selling these big knives on the streets and guns on the streets and like you, you're walking by them and I just wasn't comfortable there. So I, if I have a little moment, I would say it was Istanbul and I'm still a little bit mad at my brother and a couple other people who told me to go there, single people who don't have a wife and kids mm-hmm. telling me to go there. It's great. There's no problems. <laughs> <laughs> because it's different when you have kids. If you're there by yourself, you know, you can just give someone your wallet or you can, you know, whatever. When you have kids, you're more vulnerable. And, uh, you know, again, maybe it was just uh, that our particular experience uh, that week or, the, you know, the corners we went around and there's 30, you know, guys there who aren't playing soccer and saying hello to you and just making you feel uncomfortable. Uh, but that was probably a low moment um, and something that I would be, yeah, but that could happen to you in New York City. That could mm-hmm. happen to you in Mexico City. That could happen to you anywhere. If you go around in Philadelphia, it's happened to me, actually, uh, if you go around the wrong corner. But I've had mostly good experiences traveling. But that probably means I haven't traveled enough. You know, <laughs> I've got friends who've got the, the nightmare stories uh, where they're going to Australia and the plane takes off and they say, we've got some good news and some bad news. And the bad news is they got to return to the airport in LA and, and what's even worse than that is they have to burn, you know, four hours of gas before they land in California and, and, uh, you know, stuff like that, like flight cancellations, buses breaking down, um, getting Montezuma's revenge. I haven't had those. I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty fortunate on that regard. I don't, I haven't had to go to a hospital in a third world country for me or any of my kids, knock on wood yet. So, uh, it's common at some point, but, um, I think that people are definitely afraid of traveling for, for that reason. They don't want to have, uh, they're afraid of illness. They're afraid of getting robbed or mugged, uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, before we traveled, before I started traveling a lot. I hated it. I mean, I honestly did. I would get stressed out. And this is before they made you take off all your clothes at the <laughs> at the, at the metal detector. Uh, I felt like, you know, I had a broken back. I felt like my I was always getting seated next to someone who was 400 pounds, and my flights were always delayed. And I just really hated it. I just I I didn't like it. So I I would say almost all my travel. Uh, 
constituted low moments uh, before uh, you know I, I cracked open that 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 Pandora's box. And I just want to go back to one thing that those trips those trips to Florida those were the stepping stones to me to you know saying yes to going moving to London. Right? If I hadn't made those intermediate steps, uh, I, those outside you know the box thinking you know ventures, there there's they are what lead you to, you know, opening up to like the, the riskier stuff. If I hadn't been going to Florida, if I hadn't been homeschooling, you know, I probably would never even think uh, to go to London. And uh, we went to London, you know, for our kids. And when you homeschool your kids, you look at everything through, or when you have any kids, I mean, even whether you homeschool or not, you start looking at things through a different lens. Like when you're young and self-orbital, you look for the next rush you know, where can I play golf? You know, what's got a nice uh, nightclub scene or whatever. But when you have kids, you start thinking, you know, what will be good for the kids? And it's really not Disney. <laughs> it's really not Disney. That is probably, uh, I would say, the worst place you can take your kids. And it's funny because my wife was the youngest in her family and she always begged to, to be taken to Disney. And they said, we took you, we took you. And they, they said, we have pictures. And they showed her these pictures of her at Disney when she was like two. <laughs> and they wouldn't take her. And we ended up doing the same thing to my daughter. She was probably two when we went to Disney. And uh, we, 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 we make the same joke. We said, we took you to Disney already. We, we have pictures to prove it. <laughs> well, I love how you circled back to that time in Florida as being a stepping stone. Because I really believe that you just never know where that inspiration is going to come from. And, you know, you look at some of the most prolific travelers, they all started somewhere or the most fearless travels. They all, they all started somewhere, whether it was a road trip to grandma's or a winter in Florida or, or even Disney, you know, for, for whatever reason, you just never know where that initial spark's going to come from. And that's, that's what I'm looking for here. Uh, especially as a father raising, you know, two young kids is to, to help provide that spark. And cause I know that I can't necessarily do it all myself, but I can expose them to a variety of, other sources of inspiration to to take them where I hope they end up someday, which is you know, wonderful, bright, well-adjusted world citizens. You can also involve them in the process. My sister was just telling me she's going to Barcelona and then on a cruise to Italy. And they had a family meeting and she said to everybody, where do they want to go? And one kid said Italy and one kid said Barcelona. And sure enough, uh, <laughs> there was a cruise that went straight you know, from Barcelona to parts of Italy, and that's what they booked. So they were involved in the process. And, you know, if your kids want to go to Disney, say, sure, go look, see how much it'll cost and have them punch up, see how much the tickets are and how much the flights are and how much the rental car is and, and involve them in the process uh, so that they understand what goes into it. When we went to Disney as kids, again, I was we were working class. My mother had this massive piggy bank, and we saved for years and years and years just to go to Disney. And so we were involved or aware of the expense of going and we appreciate it as kids, but not everybody does. You know, some kids grow up and they just think that they go, you know, <laughs> they just go places and there's no cost time wise or money wise. And uh, that's a whole other, yeah. you know, spoiling and titling, uh, you know, that's a whole other uh issue there. But um, no, involve the kids in, in the travels. And once they see that they can direct their own life, uh, that's a powerful, powerful uh, pill for them to swallow. That's a powerful operating system for them to have in their brain. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And I'm looking forward to that coming up because for better or worse, I think right now I'm settled in the camp of of the, of the spoiling camp because we, we take our kids, we've taken them quite a few places and they 
they just we just go there. These are just things that we do. But my son's five now, and he's we're really ready to start involving him and looking at the finances. That was a real interesting point you made. It got me thinking about. I have an economics degree, so immediately I think opportunity cost. You talked about how much your mom put in that piggy bank over the years to get to Disney. Now, if she could have said, okay, kids, we've saved up enough to go to Disney and it's X amount of dollars. Let me show you all these other things we could do with X amount of dollars. This could be three, four, five summers worth of other trips or this one Disney trip. What do you think? I don't know if, you know, what age kids start clicking, that logic starts kicking in, but it's a, it's really good to be at least thinking about it. Well, I believe you start prenatal with education. You talk to them even when they can't understand you. You show them things even when they can't fully grasp it. And, you know, your kids, are they're not going to fully appreciate it. You know, we were in Paris for a week and it rained and uh, we had a couple of, you know, hiccups there and my kids were pouting and, uh, you know, I'm screaming at them. I'm saying, Listen, your kids, people save up their whole life to come to Paris. And, <laughs> you know, they're, you're, you're, they're like, Par- they still think Paris stinks. Um, they're never going to fully appreciate it because, you know, they didn't earn the money and whatever. But um, traveling is... Uh, there's so many facets to it. There's the cost of going. There's the, um, before we would go somewhere. So if we, we had a trip actually, um, wherever we go, my wife will go to the library and get a bunch of books on the place and they do what's called a unit study on the place before we get there. So they have some context of the, the country that we're going to. And, um, we were, we were planning a trip to Hawaii that ended up getting canceled. And my wife goes to the library. She registers or she orders all these books based on, you know, volcanoes and the history of Hawaii. And she, we throw them at the kids. And so, you know, we don't just show up, go to a museum or go on a tour. It's fully integrated into their educational curriculum um, before we even get there. And what it does is it, is it really accentuates, it really adds a lot to the trip. Um, and when you go to a place like Europe, there's just so much history there, and you know they have th- we have two three hundred years of history in America, and they have thousands of years of history, and so um, you know these trips are are educational opportunities. They're not just you know go there, uh, eat the food, uh, go on the hop on or hop off bus tour. Oh, I, I did want to mention that that when we go to a place and people kind of mock them a little bit, but the first day in Paris, the first day in Liverpool, the first day in Madrid. We always go on that hop on, hop off bus tour because we want to get the whole landscape of the um, of whatever city or area we're in. You know, you could do research and you can still miss out on something. You can, you could come home from somewhere and people say you didn't go there. Oh, you had to go there. So I've always found that that hop on, hop off bus tour is is, is actually kind of fun and very helpful. And if you plug your um, you plug your your headphones in. I don't know how familiar you are with these, but you know you always get a tour, and it'll be in like nine languages or eleven languages. You can hear it in Mandarin or wherever you're from, and it just gives you a great overview of wherever you are at that moment. And uh, that's definitely one of the tips that I give people, and it's something that that we do ourselves. I have a, an interesting trick that I've discovered, and I, I share it with people whenever I can. It has to do with those audio tours. If you can get your hands on the actual audio tour, whether, I mean, if it's, if it's something, you know, if they give you a a headset and something you have to turn back in, you may not be able to access it later. But if you have something you can download, keep on your phone and take home with you, wait a couple months, three months, six months, whatever, after the trip and play that audio tour again. 
And I've found that it just unlocks memories that you didn't even know you had and you can close your eyes and be right back on that tour again. It's it's a pretty remarkable little hack because I love just any way I can just really store memories learn and really learn to just access them. And it usually has to do with the five senses and definitely don't underestimate your your ears when it comes to capturing those travel memories. Well, you could never remember all the things that have happened to you. And that's what's good about digital photography and blogs. And my kids have had blogs since they were five years old, or maybe even four. Go ahead and plug them. Well, my son's got a couple. Uh, his now is called homeschoolson.com. And my daughter's, I'm not sure what hers is called. It's uh, she, Well, she's got homeschoolglobe.com. She has a print newsletter as well. And she, they have YouTube channels. I have something online, uh, my homeschool dad, YouTube channel. Whenever I travel, I turn on, you know, the phone, I, you know, I take video footage and I put it up and I could never possibly remember all these things that happen that we experience if we didn't have those, um, electronic devices. I don't, I don't care who it is. You, you can't remember it. There's so much stuff that happens. And, um, you know, the phone is really amazing, uh, not just to show other people, but for yourself to look back on. And right now I'm just looking at uh, on my desk here, a picture of my daughter in La Jolla. And, you know, I have that picture forever. And uh, another one, I have a picture, another picture from another one of her issues, her and her um, brother on Lookout Mountain in Tennessee. And uh, we have this forever. And <laughs> there's some people that actually don't take pictures. And I, I just think they're crazy. You have to take those, especially if your kids not yourselves necessarily, but of your kids, you need to capture that stuff and um, need to need to memorialize it. Absolutely, and video too. Even if it's just something short, doesn't have to be very well shot or anything. I just love looking back at, at videos of, of my kids, especially when they're like first learning to walk, first learning to talk, and you kind of forget, like, oh my gosh, he used to, you know, he used to slur that word, he used to slur that word, and he used to be so cute, and you just forget about it as time goes by. So it's, it's so much fun to have those. Those, those little memories that uh, just take a few seconds. Our, our most, I want to tell you about our most recent trip was Mexico City. And we've been to a bunch of places. And my wife and I were down there. And, it, and again, we go to a new place. It was sort of on our list of places to go. And uh, if anybody's listening, if you live in America, you should go to Mexico City. Because, I mean, my flight from New York was $247. It is not an expensive place to go to. Mm-hmm. It is not 100 degrees. It's uh, got a high elevation. And uh, you can, if you live in America, you probably know a little Spanish. You can get, get around down there. And it's cheap. Uh, so you don't have to go to Thailand. Uh, you can go to Mexico City. My wife and I, we decided, you know, we have to come here for a month. We don't want to go to Naples, Florida for another month. We've done Naples a bunch of years. Uh, let's go to Mexico City. It's only $900 to rent a place for a month instead of $4,000. Uh, so I just wanted to, you know, put that out there for Mexico City. If anyone's been thinking about Mexico City, it's it's not it's not Cancun. Cancun doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I can see that. So, Dana, speaking of educational opportunities, tell me about EinsteinBlueprint.com. Let's let's hear all the details and where we can find out more and how we can get involved. Well, I've everywhere I go since my kids were young. Uh, people have grabbed me sometimes quite rudely and said, you know, what did you do to these kids? You know, because they're, they're reading 500 page books when they're tiny and they, their verbal skills. And, and then I threw a video up of my son driving the quadratic formula when he was six years old. And ever since that gauntlet was thrown down, people, you know, have just come up to me and say, what'd you do? What'd you do? I have young kids. What'd you do? And I would tell them, and you know, a few of them would maybe do some of the stuff that I told them, but I didn't really have a package to hand them and say, this is what I did. 
And so what I started doing a few years ago was working with other families. I would actually work uh, with their kids on an intense, uh, you know, at an intense level for a few hours a week. And I would incorporate or help them uh, in, reshape their house, their, their attitude towards education, their curriculum, uh, the whole shebang. Uh, and I would basically say, hey, this is what I do. You want my results? Just do what I do. And I would help them you know, hold their hand as they did some of the things that, that I did that nobody else does, like, you know, go to a zero television household, for, for example. And so I was working with a lot of these wealthy people uh, on an intimate level, but I didn't have a product that I could hand people. And so for the last, you know, few years, I wanted to have something that I could hand people that wouldn't cost them, you know, twenty-five dollars or $50,000. And they could, you know, just read it and they wouldn't have to read the, you know, the 200 books that I read. They wouldn't have to do the, you know, 20,000 experiments with kids that I did. They could just get all my best practices in one big binder and uh, save them all that time. And they could take my stuff and, you know, swipe and deploy for their own kids. And so that's where the Einstein blueprint came from. And the name Einstein uh, was stro chosen strategically because a lot of times people would meet me and they beat my kids and they would say, well, your kid's just obviously gifted. And I would say, no, 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 no. Look at what we did. My kid's stupid. He can't get the pee in the pot. He can't do this. He doesn't know that. He's a normal kid. He's, you know, as much as I try to convince people that my son wasn't an outlier or he wasn't born like Forrest Gump, you know, a lot of people didn't want to hear it. And so if I made it the Dan blueprint or the John blueprint, um, it would be confirming that, um, that, that mythological objection. And the reason I called Einstein blueprint is because Einstein is synonymous with genius, right? Definitely. And it turns out, it turns out that there is a formula for success in life. And, uh, they didn't know this formula 300 years ago or 200 years ago, but it's been codified by uh, Napoleon Hill and more recently people like Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins. And uh, basically, if you want to get be successful in chess or, uh, or business or, or fitness or whatever it is, there are people that you can model. There are success principles that are transferable. And so what I tried to do, or I would say I, what I did was I took all these success principles from the most successful people from Einstein to Abraham Lincoln to Steve Jobs to Jeff Bezos to you know Helen Keller to, to Oprah Winfrey, and I took all their wisdom and I distilled it into what, what I consider the ultimate educational curriculum for any child. And that's what the Einstein blueprint is. And, it, and it's based on a few assumptions. I mean, it's it's based on the idea that all children have infinite potential, which I believe wholeheartedly and I will argue with anyone over to death. I believe all children have infinite potential. I've never once met a child who didn't have vastly more untapped potential than than they're displaying at the moment. And that goes for me as well. And it's also uh one of the other pillars of the Einstein blueprint is that, you know, even though your child has infinite potential, the whole world is actually out there and in some ways in, in unintentionally or, or intentionally conspiring to suffocate your child's potential, right? So there are all these things that we do, these mindsets, this programming, these people trying to sell us things. Oh, just bring your kid to this, this uh, you know, uh, Ivy, Ivy League preschool and your child will be set for life. You know, they're, they're selling you a bill of goods, which may or may not be true. And so it's two, it's, it's two pillars. It's understanding that all kids have infinite potential. And on the other hand, on the negative side, that there are forces at work, including our own biases, our own fears, our own faulty programming that are working against 
our kids' potential seeing that light of day. And the, the final pillar is that, you know, only parents can unlock the full potential in their kids. A school's not going to do it. Uh, the economy's not going to do it. It's not going to happen by accident. Uh, parents have all the power. They have way more power to shape their kids' outcomes than they're aware of. And so on my mission to promote uh, the Einstein blueprint, I spend a lot of time speaking directly to parents. I'm not out there saying we need to change uh, schools. We need to uh, you know, get rid of vending machines because kids, I'm going straight to parents. I help parents fix the home because home is where it all happens. Home is, uh, and I just wrote a LinkedIn article on this, home is 10 times more important than school. Everybody thinks their kid has a school problem when really they have a home problem. And school is tough. School is an antiquated institution. Uh, and it's really not conducive with uh, spitting out, you know, outside the box thinking, risk taking, creative entrepreneurs. Um, school is a, is a relic of the industrial model and, and it hasn't really evolved. They, they've tweaked it a little bit here and there, but uh, I, I prefer to operate outside the school system. Because again, if we come back to, you know, the whole theme of your podcast, travel, right? If your kids are in school 180 days a year and uh, you have a week in February of school vacation and maybe a week at Christmas, uh, you can just take a big X, a big um, black magic marker and X out all these months for the next, you know, how many years where they won't be able to travel. And then it gets locked into like some two months in the summer. I was just talking to a colleague of mine who who does earn seven figures a year. And I said, you know, what are you doing with your kids? Because he was homeschooling them. Then he put them back in the school. And now that his kids are back in school, they go to Disney every February and then they go to Hawaii and that's it. In other words, it just totally annihilated their travel. And so you know, there, there we, I could talk for a long time on travel and education and parenting and school and entrepreneurship. All these things are tied together. And that's what the Einstein blueprint is. Einstein blueprint is like, you know, the matrix. It is, is, it is this curriculum, this ideal curriculum that if we could pull off for our kids, uh, even in part, because what I tell people is that it, this stuff is so potent. Travel is so important. Art is so important. Uh, starting early is so important. Having you know a home environment that is conducive to books is so important. This stuff is so powerful that if you can just implement a fraction of it, you're going to see exponential changes in your kids. And just like Florida was a stepping stone for me to travel uh, to you know further afield, uh, I try to get parents to just understand their own powers, understand their own kids potential and just take that next little step, that, that, that little nudge outside their comfort zone, uh, that little nudge past their fears and see what happens. And when I'm successful, uh, it works a hundred percent of the time. This stuff is not, it's not the damn blueprint. It's, it, it's based on, you know, Tony Robbins and, and you, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with what Steve Jobs says about creativity. You're arguing with what Albert Einstein says and Mark and Mark Twain says, you know, this stuff, these success principles, people think you have to be 35 years old and go find Tim Ferriss or discover Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins and get burnt out from the corporate world and then discover entrepreneurship, then discover self-motivation, then discover world travel. I say, Bull. I say you start from day one with all that stuff. There's no age minimum on any of those things that those people preach. And I do not think uh, that you have to experience pain in misdirection, in detours uh, before you get on, you know, the most abundant paths that life has to offer. 
Well, Dan, I think I'm, I'm living proof of that in a way. I had the travel piece as a young person, but then I went through the very traditional paces of school, include, including uh, university, and then the job, nine to five, et cetera, decent salary, benefits, all the stuff that we're supposed to want, the outward appearance of success. And now I am 41 years old, realizing that this is that wasn't the path I was meant to be on. I was a path that I have to take some ownership of. You know, I can't say I was completely just forced down this path. You know, but definitely that was what what people did. That was what people in my neighborhood, people who look like me, did with their lives. And I just worked really hard to come to center and and walk down that path. And you know, there's a lot of factors that happened to me over the last two three years that really opened my eyes and sort of shook me out of that trance of just trying to stay forced down this path that might lead to a gold gold watch someday. An interesting point you made was talking about how you took your message from the Einstein blueprint just straight to the parents, circumvented the schools completely. Was that a tactical decision from the very beginning to just not even bother trying to change what's going on in schools? Well, schools were designed to uh, create obedient, compliant people. That's actually the history of schooling. And there's a book that you know, any listeners could find. It's called The Underground History of American Education. But school was not designed to unleash uh, children's potential. It was actually designed to uh, constrain it. Because if you go back and look at the history of schooling, the people who pushed it were people like Rockefellers and Carnegie's and people that owned the steel, uh, the steel factories and had unionized workers. And the, the last thing they wanted was union strife. They did not want any rebellion. And school was actually designed to separate children from their parents uh, and control their, their thinking. And, um, you know, the government also wants a well-managed population and their interests are, are not the same interests as yours as a father or mine or any parents for that matter. So, but th- th- that's like, you know, that, that's, that's something that someone would have to go research on their own. But most of the time I, when I meet a teacher who bashes homeschooling, you know, a teacher, I say, Hey, do you know when school was invented, uh, who invented it and why they invented it? And they have no clue. They, they really don't. And it, I don't try to reform school because I mean, Mark Zuckerberg just donated $100 million to the Newark school system, and it just it just evaporated. Uh, people have been throwing money, billions and probably trillions of money into the school system for years. It, money has nothing to do with education. Education is about reading. It's about creativity. It's about uh, having time uh, to yourself. It's about being in groups of people that are going to level you up. You know, I, I just walked by a crowded schoolyard, and um, one of my very controversial uh, principles is that daycare is actually not good for kids. And I'll explain that uh, here because it's a very controversial topic. If you and I wanted to improve our business, improve our podcast, improve our consulting, improve anything, even improve our fitness, we would get in a group of people who were more successful than us, right? We would get in, we would want to be, you know, in a group that's going to level us up. What school does and what preschool does, is it's the opposite of a mastermind. It, the, the children in a school, they, they pull their ignorance and they actually drag each other down. So, <laughs> I mean, you, all you have to do is look back on your own life and your own uh, peer groups and you'll, you'll see that the peer groups you ran with, you know, nobody leveled anybody up. 
And, and that's, that's what happens in a school environment. And uh, it's actually embedded in the uh, structure and the design of a school. It's called age segregation. And whenever they want, and they even do this with animals, when they want to domesticate pigs, they take all the baby pigs and they put them together. They remove them from the parents. They want them, their senses dulled. They want their independence uh, squelched. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go too far afield in here, but I didn't go into schools because it's been proven that schools are beyond reform. And the history of schools is that they're not designed to unlock kids' full potential. I mean, it's just, I mean, as you go farther along, further along in your parenting journey, uh, hopefully you'll check out that book. And uh, it's not anything I can explain to you in, in like a five minute answer. You have to see it. And you also have to see what happens to kids when they're outside that system. So I've had the privilege of coming in contact with many, many kids uh, who didn't go to school. Like that guy I mentioned uh, earlier who never went to school and traveled with his itinerant glass-blowing father, he somehow becomes you know, the youngest professor ever at MIT. Uh, there's a guy named Palmer, Palmer Lucky who was homeschooled in California, and he started a virtual reality company, and he sold it to Facebook for $2 billion. There is a homeschooled kid in New York City who started Tumblr, and he sold that for you know, over a billion dollars as well. And there are so many people doing so many outrageous things uh, outside the system that at some point you have to say, hey, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college, Michael Dell dropped out of college, Bill Gates dropped out of college. And there are all these amazing homeschool kids. I could give you another one. This is a 16-year-old kid in Florida named Caleb Maddox who is on a speaking tour and he makes a million dollars a year. There is a 13-year-old kid who got hired by Google. He's making a million dollars a year. There are all these data points and there's all this evidence out there that, um, you know, that, that these kids are not coming out of a school system. They're coming uh, out of you know, the homeschooling world. And um, that's why I don't try to reform schools. It's just, it just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, if, you, if you think about school, most kids, they'll spend an hour getting ready for school uh, getting ready for and getting to school and an hour uh, coming home from school and recovering from that. That's, that's two hours a day just in logistics. And you'd never get that time back. And uh, that's just you know, one of the, the inefficiencies of school that if you remove, um, you know, unbelievable things happen. I mean, my kids get up 7 a.m. in their pajamas and they go right into their books. They're not wasting two hours a day. And, that, and that, those two hours a day, they compound over time. And um, there's a bunch of other bad things that happen. But I think you get the idea that, that this education outside the system, it, if you take full advantage of it, uh, it, you can do a lot of things uh, besides just traveling. And I, I'll just wrap it up with saying that, you know, when you do when you pull your kids outside of school, it changes you, it changes the mom, and it changes the dad in ways that are very, very hard to uh, foresee. I mean, I cannot imagine my life uh, if I wasn't actively involved in the design, in the education, and the travel of my children. I mean, it creates these, these bonds between parents and kids that, um, you know, I spend more time with my son in a week than my father spent with me in 18 years, honestly. And, I, I honestly do. And that's nuts. And I'm sure, I'm sure you're absolutely right. That your, your theory of the reverse mastermind with, with the preschools, I can see why it's controversial, but I also, I buy into it a hundred percent. I've never, I've never heard it explained quite that way before. And it immediately made me think of a story from my own life that may make that whole concept a little more palatable. If you, 
out in the audience, you've never come in contact with the mastermind principle. It's a story from my own life about playing racquetball as a kid with my dad. I was I started playing with my dad. I was about maybe 10 years old and he was and still is a very very good racquetball player. Well, just going from complete novice playing with my dad several times a week, I got good really 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 quickly because I was playing against my dad who was, you know, a local racquetball stud, I guess. I don't know. But just being playing against somebody playing with, playing alongside someone who's that much better, they elevate your game. And then kind of the end of that story was I never really branched out and played anyone besides my dad until I got older. And even though I considered myself a pretty good racquetball player, but I hadn't, and I started playing other people who are also really good, but maybe had a completely different game from my dad. And they would, they would kick my butt because I only knew how to play that one style and how to beat my dad. If I had been playing against all these other guys who were also great, but great for different reasons, I could have been something really special. So that's that mastermind principle, I think, in a nutshell, as far as my own life, just being elevated by people who are greater than I. Well, really, in, in a preschool, I, I tell people, you know, your, your three-year-old can't learn anything else from a three-year-old. Uh, your three-year-old ideally should be around five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, teenagers, young adults, whom they can at least by osmosis pick up better behavior and more vocabulary. Like three-year-olds can't can't teach each other anything. And in 1950, the average vocabulary of a six-year-old was 4,000 words. Uh, now it's down to a thousand words. That's nuts. And if and if I told you that sending your kid to preschool was going to reduce their vocabulary by 50 to 75 percent, you'd say I'd never do that. And a lot of people would argue with that. They'd say that's not true. They don't want to believe it. But you know, this these this, these are researchers. You know, this, these are numbers. And uh, there's only two things that have changed since 1950, and uh, you know today in terms of like the major inputs in kids' lives. You know, one of them is television, and the other one is preschool and daycare. And the kids who are Around adults, like the, the little child in 1950 used to be nipping at mom's heel. Mom was speaking to junior in full and complete sentences. And that's the difference. You know, whenever I see a child who has a, a, a more expanded vocabulary than other kids, there's always, I can always point to the reason. It's always a lack of daycare or even not. I know kids who have big uh, vocabularies at young ages because they have a talkative nanny. And so when I coach people on how to hire a nanny, I say, you better get a nanny who talks so much and so eloquently that she's annoying. And uh, it has a 100% positive effect on the vocabulary acquisition and the verbal skill development of your kids. So between homeschooling your kid and sending them to school, there's this massive spectrum of opportunities to do small things that can change the trajectory of your kid's life and right down to, you know, you know, what type of nanny, you know, you get the nanny who's mute or who's on her cell phone all the time, who doesn't talk, you know, that's not as good as one again, who, who doesn't shut up. Well, that is, that is absolute gold, my friend. And as we speak, as we record this interview, it's Friday, May 4th, 1124 AM Pacific time. Uh, my daughter is in the other room with one of the most talkative people I know is our babysitter and sh- and my daughter who's two and a half shocks me every day with her vocabulary and she puts together full and complete multi-sentence thoughts and I can't remember the last time she made a grammatical mistake and she just turned two and a half. Small sample size, I know, Dan, but it, it definitely backs up your theory 100%. No, no, you watch it and you watch her behavior if she spends a weekend with a bunch of kids her age and you will see, if you peel your eyes for it, you will see that her 
you know, there'll be more whining, there'll be more defiance. And when they're around, and this goes for even when they're 13 years old, if they spend a weekend with their, with their friends and they come back, you'll see their behavior is not on the same level as it was when they left. Uh, it, it's, we are social animals and you are the average of the, the five people you spend the most time with. And that's not just for Jim Rohn and Tim Ferriss and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who are trying to level up, you know, their, their networks and their net worth and their skill sets. That's for kids as well. So that they are the average of the five people that they spend the most time with. So those are big inputs, <laughs> those people. Yes, indeed, my friend. That's going to do it for part two of my chat with Dan Luzonis. Uh, We're going to wrap this up with part three, which is going to go live tomorrow morning. Uh, If you don't feel like waiting, just head to DramaticTravels.com slash 016 and check out all three parts of this episode, my chat with Mr. Dan Luzonis. All right, my friend, have a great one and we'll talk soon. Bye.